0: We had a late night last night. We had about 60 folks that went to the uh, Charlotte Knights um, baseball game last night, and after two rain delays, I think I kissed my little boys at 11.57 last night. Now I say that because um, I was one of 59 people to have a late night last night, so I know who you are if you went to the game, and I am watching to make sure you stay awake this morning. We had a great time. Beyond uh, having a good time at the game, it was just a wonderful time to uh, have with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. We had the chance to move around, had the whole section to ourselves, and when the rain came, we were covered up. So that was quite all right. We enjoyed that. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah. And this morning's kind of a challenging uh, lesson because you guys have all heard that story before, right? Isn't the temptation to kind of switch your brain off when you've heard it before? I love it with my kids. We have the opportunity to do our uh, nightly Bible story. And I still remember uh, the chagrin when I don't know what the story was. But they kind of said, Dad, we've heard that one before. Can we move on to another one? Well, the truth is, if you follow Christ long enough, uh, you will have heard all of them before. And the story of Jonah is an interesting story because at in, in its core, the story of Jonah is a story about God's love. So when you hear that, aren't you supposed to go oh don't we we love god's love God's love is a great topic and don't don't you want to talk about god's love? The problem is religious people don't like to talk about god's love. We think we want to be like God and we want to be loving, but oh friends, we limit who we give our love to, and God does not, and that's where. Part of the offense, of the message of the story of Jonah comes in, is that God loves people that Jonah just doesn't really want to love, and he struggles with that because he knows that God is a God of grace. And so this morning, as we look at the book of Jonah, it's very interesting because we're doing a series on our favorite Bible stories, and we have jumped all the way from the book of Genesis to Jonah. David didn't make the cut. Moses didn't make the cut. And it's really strange because we have laid out chronologically the 14 favorite Bible stories of Northside Baptist Church. And I find it interesting that on the weekend in which we celebrate our nation's independence, we read the story of a prophet who loved his country more than he loved his God. And there's a very tacit warning against a nationalism that is not God-centered. A nationalism that has more love for nation than it has love for God. So we're looking at one of the prophets today, and this morning, it's a prophet with not a lot of prophecy. One of the reasons Jonah is so well-loved is it's a story. It's narrative. It's very easy to get into it. There are not a, a lot of, thus saith the Lord's. There's no lightning bolts from heaven. Instead, you've got four short chapters that tell the story of a prophet When you hear the word prophet, you tend to think, when you think of a prophet in the Old Testament, that this is a man that is the apex of spirituality. This is the man you want to have your son's apprentice under. This is the man you want to invite over for dinner. He's the man you want to influence your family. You want to be associated with him. And the problem is that when we get to the story of Jonah, he's not the spiritual apex. And that's kind of the point of the story is it here this man called of God was a better Israelite than he was a follower of Yahweh. And so we'll start this morning by looking uh, at the very beginning of the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And we see that Jonah is called by God. And while the words are still on God's lips, Jonah responds. Isn't that great? When God, stu- when God talks... You listen. And Jonah provides a great example of hearing very clearly what God has said. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Joseph, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. That's his charge. That's what God has said. Verse 3. But Jonah rose up To flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Oh, he heard God clearly, friends. And he chose to do the exact opposite. He was called to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. You may not have uh, heard, you may not be able to find Nineveh on your globe at home. You may not be able to find Nineveh on your Google Maps, Um, but I guarantee you that you've heard of Nineveh. Has anyone ever heard of Mosul, Iraq? Very close. We have troops in that area now. And so he's called to go to this capital city, what would be modern day Iraq, it was the capital of the... Assyrian Empire, and instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to Tarshish. Now, Bible commentators are not quite certain where Tarshish is. They know where Nineveh is, and their best guess is that Tarshish was somewhere in Spain. So God says, go this way into the desert. What's Jonah do? He goes to the complete end of the known world in his day and age. Now, I don't know what exactly he was trying to do, get out of cell phone range you know, I, I, I had a friend that um, if he wanted to get out of a conversation, he would go out on his back deck because somehow the transition from his kitchen to his deck destroyed his cell phone reception. And so if you called in the middle of a football game, he'd be like, hey, I'm having trouble. Can you do that with God? How far do you have to go to get out of God's cell phone range? Uh, I think he's got like infinity whenever minutes and it's a, it's a global plan. So don't do it. And the point here is this, that we have to recognize that running from God's calling never works. Running from God's calling never works. And when I talk about God's calling, we, we have got to reclaim an understanding that all of God's people are called. It's not just 1% to 3%, the people who make up church staffs and are pastors and missionaries. All of God's people are called to do something in His kingdom. The only difference is where you draw your paycheck. You may not draw a paycheck from a church. We're not talking about your employment, we're talking about your calling. And just like Jonah, you may never be called to go to a foreign country, but you're called to impact your family, you're called to impact your neighborhood, you're called to impact your church, your city. Every Christian has a calling. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite sermons growing up, the pastor that I grew up with, he called it the three S's of the Christian life. What is every Christian called to? He's called to be saved, he's called to be sanctified, to live right, and he's called to serve. Saved, sanctified, serving. Friends, that's your calling. And you cannot run from it. Because the truth is this. When you run from your job, you're running from God himself. It's right there. Did you, see what, did you see what Jonah said he was doing? God called him and said to do this. And then uh, look at verse 3. Twice you see this phrase. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. Why? From the presence of the Lord. So he paid his, he paid his fare. He went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish. Why? To flee from the presence of the Lord. Here's the thing that's terrible. If you are indeed a Christian and you are not living out your calling, it's a terrible existence. God's presence will be all over you. He will convict you of things that you try to justify. He will um, trouble your sleep. You know, the Bible says He gives to His beloved even in his sleep. God doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. And even while we're sleeping, He makes our bodies to work. I have never once wondered if I'm going to continue breathing while I sleep at night. God has made my autonomic nervous system to do that regularly. I don't have to pray at night. Heart, please keep beating. It does it. It happens. <clears throat> and in the same sense, um, God has just made things to work in the Christian life. And when we are running from God, it's a terrible place to be. And so Jonah is running from his calling. And at least here, he's explicit that he's running from god himself the problem is that many times when we think about people who are running from god we think that they're pagans remember the story of the prodigal son we think that it's the younger son who runs from god it's also the older son that ran away in his self-righteousness so you don't have to be a pagan to run away jonah is who he is a prophet of the most high god and he is running away he is a believer he is a prophet And the truth is that where you draw your paycheck doesn't change your sin nature. You can be a prophet of God and you can disobey. Joan is an example of that. As we move on to verses 4 through 6, we see this truth, is that if God wants you for an assignment, He will track you down. And let me suggest that that's not always a pleasant experience. (laughs) Break out your seasickness tabs as we read verses 4 through 6. The Lord... Hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laid down, and had fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, "'How is it that you are sleeping?' Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. We'll continue on in verses 7 through 10. I think it's kind of odd how Jonah responds to this situation he finds himself in. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us draw straws, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Big surprise. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the lord because he had told them he wasn't hiding the fact that he was running from god and when we talk about the just the oddity of how jonah responds when the storm hits what do the sailors do ah they freak out these are people who live on the sea do you think they've seen a storm or two before absolutely but there is a nature to this storm that is different And the people who are most experienced in this profession are absolutely terrified. They break out on the encyclopedia of every god to pray to, so that perhaps they might receive mercy. And Jonah is asleep in the belly of the ship. Isn't that interesting? Jonah doesn't even pray. The pagans do what? They pray to false gods, but they pray. And what do they have to do? The pagan ship captain has to go, Hey, Jonah, wake up and pray. You think a Hebrew prophet was perhaps a little offended that a pagan sailor? A pagan sailor told him what he needed to do to pray. And then they draw straws and surprise, surprise, Jonah's the cause of this calamity. He doesn't hide the fact that he's running from God. He doesn't hide the fact that, you know, hey, listen, I'm a a Hebrew. I'm a prophet of the Most High God. Things are okay with me. And that leads us to our second point, that we have to be aware that salvation can ironically lead to self-righteousness. What does Jonah admit to the people when they ask him? He admits that he's a prophet of God, that he fears God, and that he is... Running from him, he fears God, yet he's running from him. So friends, we have to be wary of talk about fearing God when you are not obeying God. If you fear God, what do you do? You say, yes, sir, uh, while you're packing your bags to go to Nineveh. You don't do what Jonah has done and say, yeah, I I fear God. And so I'm running away from every... I'm running in the exact opposite direction of what he has told me to do. And the thing thing that's most interesting is when you look at the scene that we have here in Jonah chapter 1, contrast Jonah's disobedience with the obedience of everyone around him. Everyone else is obeying. The pagan sailors obey him. Jonah says, um, "Here's the problem. It's me. What do we have to do now, Jonah? Um, throw me in the ocean. Throw me, throw me in the ocean. OK. Can we take a vote? You know uh, What's going to happen? They obey. The wind obeys God. The waves obey God. And as we know, in just a few seconds, there will be a fish large enough in just the right place, at just the right time. So the pagan sailors, the wind, the waves, and fish obey God, but not His prophet. It is wrong for us to allow our salvation, to make us self-righteous to the fact that we think we get to choose when we obey God and when we do not. The question comes to us, are you saved to soak or are you saved to serve? Jonah really liked God's blessings when they didn't inconvenience him. He really liked God's blessings when they didn't make him uncomfortable because he just wanted to sit in his heavenly hot tub and enjoy all of God's blessings, push the button for a little room service, bring me my grapes, grapes and champagne, and let me just enjoy your blessings. But Friends, God, God, does not, God does not bless you to accumulate all of his blessings for yourself. He blesses you that you might bless others. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that God comforts us. He, He gives us all comfort in the midst of our distress so that when someone else goes through a similar situation, we might be able to lovingly put our arms around them and say, God saw me through this and he will see you through this too. Your friends may disappoint you, Your circumstances may devastate you, but God will be faithful to his character to be true to you in this situation. So don't soak in God's blessings. Use them to serve and to obey. Number three, while God's punishment of sin is severe, we also know that he's a God of do-overs. He's a God of do-overs. In verses 11 and 12, Jonah says... Listen, here's what you've got to do. You've got to throw me into the sea. You've got to pick me up and you've got to do this because all of this problem that we're facing has come upon you because of me. Jonah admits it's his fault. He knows he is wrong for disobeying and he says, toss me overboard. Here's the thing that's awesome. You know what the sailors do after Jonah says this? They don't obey right away. It says that they try to row to shore. They try to row to shore. Why? They don't want this man's blood on their hands. Could you imagine being one of the sailors and having to take one of your passengers in the middle of a stormy ocean in Hebo? That'd be a story you tell your kids when you get home? Hey, let me tell you about our fishing trip. We didn't catch anything, but we sure threw a lot in the water, including a man. The thing that's ironic is Jonah is running from God's assignment Because he does not want to be the instrument through which God shows his mercy to foreigners. And yet in this example, the pagan sailors are showing more mercy to Jonah than he will show to anyone else who's not an Israelite. Amazing to see that they show him mercy by trying to row to shore. Well, God doesn't want them to row to shore. And so he creates a headwind that makes it impossible for them to go to shore. And they consent to do what? Jonah has said. They throw him overboard. And the truth is when we look at water in the scriptures, water is a sign of judgment. Water equals judgment. You remember Noah's flood? Sign of judgment. You remember the bloody Nile? Sign of judgment. You remember the Red Sea that the Hebrews walked through on dry ground, but when Pharaoh's army came, what did it do? Crash down on them. Water is judgment. And Jonah, by admitting, confessing his sin, admitting his fault, is saying, I rightly deserve the judgment of God. Throw me into the ocean. There is no hope. There's no personal flotation device. Um, He doggy paddled for as long as he could make it. But when he said, throw me into the ocean, he was saying goodbye. He was admitting that he was in trouble. And the problem is that this is not what a prophet's portfolio should look like. He should preach God's judgment, not experience it. And yet, because of his rebellion, he has forsaken the opportunity to preach it. And now, the full cup of God's wrath is poured out upon him. He is experiencing judgment by being cast into the sea. And the truth is that even in the midst of God's judgment, it is laced with grace. Now, Jonah didn't know that when he got tossed overboard, did he? He thought this was sayonara. See you later. But it says that God had appointed a fish. And this is where we see God working on Jonah's heart to bring him back to a place where a a do-over, a second chance was possible. And the truth is that God will use you in spite of you. He will use you in spite of you. Jonah has to end up in the belly of a fish before he prays on his own. You remember, he, he was asked to pray on the boat. It just wasn't his idea. And finally, things get bad enough in the belly of the fish, he prays. I, just, I was wondering about this with my kids this week. What would it be like? I mean, you sink down in the ocean. You heard the prayer from Jonah chapter 2. It's dark. He sank down to the roots of the mountains. Um, and you change one form of watery darkness for a semi-watery stomach of a fish. Was it dry? Did he know he was in the belly of a fish? Was he kind of in the process of being slowly um, digested? What the gastric juices do to Jonah? I don't know. I, I have never been in the belly of a fish, and I hope to never be in the belly of a fish. I'm glad to profess my ignorance and just say, I don't know what's happening. But despite Jonah's disobedience, what does God do when he prays? He hears. He hears Jonah's prayer, and he delivers him. So amidst the digestive juices of a fish's belly... There's grace. You can never get so far that God's grace can't reach you. You remember the verse in Psalm 139, if I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I go to the depths of the sea, Jonah's territory, you are there too. I find it interesting that Jonah in his prayer says, deliver me and I will offer future sacrifices to you. But in chapter 1, verse 16, what do the men do right after they throw Jonah off the ship? It says, Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Jonah from the belly of a whale says, Lord, deliver me, and I will go, and I will make a sacrifice to you. Someday, in the future, I will do this. And the pagan sailors up on the boat, when the sea calms down, they're already worshiping God. Isn't that amazing? Because here's the truth. This little mission trip that Jonah's on is already paying dividends. The men on this boat know who Yahweh is without a single word of testimony coming from the prophet's mouth. God uses Jonah's disobedience to bring him glory. It's already paying dividends despite Jonah's disobedience. And quite honestly, when it comes up time for Jonah's performance evaluation, he is a non-profitable prophet. I'm sorry, Mr. Jonah, I don't see a future for you with this company. He needs to be fired. But when you get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we see something very interesting. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Almost word for word, the same command. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Second time around, Jonah obeys. Go to Nineveh? Yes, sir. Got my map out. Pack my... Well, I don't have a bag anywhere. It was on the ship. But I'm ready to go i mobile and, and ready to obey. And we're told that Nineveh is a great city. Now, the truth of the matter is we're, we're told that the greater administrative region that made up Nineveh, it was the capital city, was more than 60 miles in circumference. 60 miles in circumference. Now, I'm still learning my uh, Rock Hill geography. I don't know what the loop is around Charlotte, but you're talking a big city. You're talking a lot of people. And it appears that Jonah, in seeking to be obedient to the Lord, marched directly to the center of the city, preached a one-sentence sermon, and turned around and left. Now, some of you might like a one-sentence sermon. (laughs) Here's the question. Had Jonah obeyed God at this point? When God said, go preach, go call against it, you think that God said, hey, I'm about to destroy this city, so in the greatest economy of words possible, can you warn them? See if you can do it in 10 words or less. See if you can Twitter um, my judgment in 140 characters and comprehensively communicate the wrath of God against all of these people. Jonah did the least amount possible to say, I obeyed. So while he obeyed, I don't know that his attitude is any better. But yet again, was Jonah's attitude right the first time? Not on the boat it wasn't. And God used him in spite of himself, didn't he? Well, wait till you see what happens now. Verses 5 through 10 of Jonah chapter 3. Jonah finishes his one-sentence sermon. Verse 5, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. How did they do that? Jonah didn't even mention Yahweh's name in his one-sentence sermon. He said, hey, Just letting y'all know, 40 days and y'all are gone. Toast. See you later. Doesn't mention that you need to repent. Doesn't mention that there's any hope of grace. But it says, the people of God believed in God. They called a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king, he arose from his throne, laid his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation and said, in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds... That they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Friends, this is better than Billy Graham. Billy Graham hadn't saved an entire city, he saved many individuals within an entire city. But Jonah goes and preaches an angry sermon, turns around and marches away. And God does an amazing thing He brings about a nationalistic revival. And did you see the fast that the king ordered? This wasn't just an adult fast. This was a kid fast. It wasn't just an adult in a kid fast. It was a donkey fast. It was a cow fast. It was a sheep fast. Not just can you not eat, but anything that you own is prohibited from food or water that we might seek God's face. What in the world has a cow done? That requires a fast. I don't know. And this would be a great place for the story to end. Listen, we've learned a great lesson from Jonah at this point, haven't we? God will use you in spite of yourself. There's a national revival. God is king. God is great. Woo-hoo! But God's not done teaching us just yet. There's a fourth chapter. There's a fourth point. And you would figure that Jonah would be pleased. Look at how God has magnified his great name in the salvation of many people. Chapter 4, verse 1 says that was far from the case. It greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Literally, it was evil to Jonah with a great evil. And he was angry. What God, has done, what God had done, in Jonah's opinion, was evil. And Jonah's attitude was appropriate. And this leads us to our fourth and final point. That sometimes the greatest wickedness around is not the pagans across the sea, but it's the hardness of our own hearts. Sometimes the greatest wickedness is not them out there, but our hearts in here. And we see something really amazing that I think is a significant warning to God's faithful throughout the ages. You see, Jonah's confession is orthodox. He believes the right things. But his expression is pagan. His expression is pagan. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, Was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. What's he saying? God, you're incredible. You love people I can't even find the ability to love. And you're willing to forgive a nation that commits atrocities against other nations. And that's why I didn't want to come because I knew who you were and I didn't want to be associated in the least with offering mercy and forgiveness to a nation that we're at war with. Remember Jesus said when you have someone over for dinner, remember who he said to have over for dinner? Don't just have people that will turn around and invite you back. See, that's what the pagans do. And see, Jonah was unwilling to offer forgiveness, mercy, grace, or the favor of the Lord to anyone who was not identified as an ethnic Hebrew. His expression of how God loved people was pagan. But boy, did he have his theology straight. God is gracious. God is kind. And so Jonah went out of the city to sit, wait, and hope for the promised destruction. He thought he was going to see a fireworks show like you had never seen. He was ready for it. But God meets him out there, and they happen to have a long talk in chapter 4. God's going to try to straighten out his wayward prophet. Not only had Jonah run from God's presence, he'd run from God's love. He said, I know you're a God of love. I don't want anything to do with it if, it if it extends to giving it to someone else. He says, I know that your judgment is laced with grace. And that's why I don't want anything to do with this project. I don't know if you've ever seen the television show, um, I think it's called Hoarders. I think that's the name. You can kind of get what it's about from the title. It's people that just like junk. I mean, they just, it's everywhere. You can't walk through their house. Ha- there might be a pathway through their house because they, just, they, have, they have junk. I think it was filmed in Kentucky. Um, just from personal experience. I, 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 think, um, I think it was filmed in Kentucky. Jonah was doing the exact same thing with God's grace. He said, as long as it is for me and mine, fine. As long as it's for me and for mine, fine. When you start giving it to others, that's a problem. Jonah himself, in this story, had been the recipient of grace. He was in the belly of a... He was in the the bottom of the ocean... And God sent a fish. And God gave him grace in the sea. But now on the land, Jonah has just reproached the God that he serves and told him he is evil for how he has given his grace, his love, and his mercy to others. God would have been just and righteous to strike Jonah dead at that moment. And yet he doesn't. He comes and he has a conversation with him. And so like the unjust steward... He sure appreciated forgiveness for himself, but is completely unwilling to give it to someone else. And so God, in spite of striking him dead for his second insubordination, gave him a grace. While Jonah's waiting in the desert to watch Nineveh fall, God causes a plant to grow over him that gives him some shade. Now, it's supernatural. It grows in a day. I don't think we've got any farmers here that... Um, I don't care how big your uh, cucumbers or zucchinis are. You're not going to be able to grow it that big that quick. And so the thing that's amazing is at this point, we actually see that Jonah has compassion on something. Because God gives Jonah the, the bush, the plant, whatever it is. And Jonah loves it. He goes, man, this is great. I got some shade. It's hot out here. This is good. And then God sends a scorching wind and dries it all up. And guess what? Jonah gets angry again. This guy's got anger issues. He causes the plant to wither up. And Jonah gets angry. And the point that God is making is that Jonah finally has showed compassion, but it's for a plant, not for people. And I think especially for us as Americans, if you go overseas, people don't have anything. Ed and uh, David and I had a chance to go to India. And I come back and I look at all the things that my kids have. And I realize that kids in India have one, maybe two toys, and one of them's a stick. We have so much stuff. We've got people that, they get dissatisfied when their car turns 50,000 miles. And they're ready for the 2014. Uh, it's 2013 right now. Is it possible that we love our stuff more than we love God? It Certainly was for Jonah. He sure loved that plant. But darn it about all those people. Jonathan Swift, the American poet, says this. We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. How can a prophet, how can a person, saved by God's immeasurable grace, not be willing to show it to another one of God's creatures. The truth is, if a prophet can despise people like this, despite the theology that they possess, is there any chance that this can be true of people who have less developed theology? Is it possible for Christians to be so hateful? Is it possible for us to be so complacent and so apathetic... That while we know that there is no hope from personal, conscious faith in Christ, that they will be doomed to a godless eternity in hell. Maybe we're not like Jonah. But in our apathy, do we at least regret it? Do you allow things, your comfort, your possessions, to outweigh your concern for people? The truth is that God is more committed to reaching this world than His people have ever been. And when we commit as a church to local and global missions, we get closer to the heart of God than we will ever have the opportunity to. God has said he will redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And the question for us is whether we want to be a a church that joins him in that mission. Because that is what he has said he is about. Last week we talked about Abraham and he promised Abraham that through him he would bless all nations through him. And now through Jonah, he's doing that by reaching the Assyrians. And Jonah says, "Uh, I don't know that this is what I signed up for. Let me read the fine print of my contract. And the thing that's amazing is that after this episode, the nation of Assyria experienced its most prosperous 150 years of existence after they repented. God poured his grace on them. He blessed them. And it's great for us to see that in this story, God does bring his enemies to himself but he also aims to change our hearts too. God brings his enemies to himself, but he aims to change our hearts. The people of Assyria were changed by God's love. Now, his love and his forbearance don't last forever. We know that Assyria, as a nation, was judged by God. But we see God's love in a variety of ways here. We see that God is a God who's willing to forgive and give a second chance. He did that to the nation of Assyria. He did that to Jonah. God was Willing to warn. He sent a prophet. He sent someone to say, You got a limited time to get this right. Nineveh. 40 days. And they listened. There's something else here that I think sometimes we miss is that Jonah is like Jesus. Jonah's like Jesus, God's perfect prophet. See, the thing that's interesting from 2 Kings, we know that Jonah was from Beth Gaffer. That name doesn't mean anything to you except that it's in the region of Galilee. So God called two prophets from Galilee to, pre- to preach forgiveness to sinners. One turned and ran as fast as he could, and one obeyed God perfectly. Both were Galileans called to preach, one was reluctant. And one was willing to share every word from the Father. Jonah complained about the Father's love. Jesus, he delighted in it. Oh, Lord, take this cup from me, if at all possible. But if it be your will, I will do it. He delighted in his Father. Jonah, you know, he had it kind of tough. He was uncomfortable in that desert heat. But Jesus, he was whipped, beaten, and scourged. Jonah is so hateful, he won't even speak to his enemies and spends three days in a fish's belly as judgment. Jesus, oh, he speaks to his enemies, and he's even willing to pour his life out and die for them, even if that means three days in the belly of the earth. Just as God delivered Jonah from a watery grave and brought him up alive, the promise this morning that the message of Jonah holds out to the people in his day and to the people today is that just as God delivered Jonah, he makes a promise to deliver anyone who will call upon the name of his risen and victorious son. And that's why when people ask Jesus, Hey, when are you coming back? You know what he says? It'll be just like in the days of Jonah. Jonah was a sign pointing us forward to a God that is gracious and compassionate and who expects for his people to be so wrought and formed by his spirit that they have the same character that he has. That we love to tell the story of God's grace to people. Are you doing it? Are you delighting in a God that is a God of forgiveness, a God of second chances? Or as soon as somebody screws up, I'm done with you. Don't be a Jonah. Be like the other prophet from Galilee. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that by the light of your word, In the illumination of your spirit, you turn your divine searchlight into the cracks and crevices of our hearts. We think that a message of love is so easy for us to stomach. And God, we don't love like you at all. Our love is so dim, I don't even know that it bears comparison. You love without exception. Lord, sometimes even when we get angry at a spouse or a child, we withhold love as a manipulative tool. God, you don't, you don't withhold love. And so, Lord, I, I don't know what this application is for every, every person here who can hear my voice. I don't know if this is a family message for them about exhibiting God's love in their family. Um, I'm, I'm certain... For many of us, it's, it's a message about evangelism. And are we telling the greatest good news there could be? Are we joining ourselves actively to uh, propagating your gospel among all peoples? Are we building the kind of church that can be just a little bit like heaven, where people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are welcome? Lord, I pray that as your spirit takes the truths of your word and applies them uh, to our hearts, that you will... Um, You will convict, that you will guide, that you will lead. Whether that is people who need to trust in Christ, perhaps, for the very first time. To claim that promise that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. To be a a part of building this church, to be an outpost of your kingdom. Doing the kinds of things that we know we should do in light of this story. or Whether it's just the need for us to repent of our hard-heartedness. I pray that in these next few moments, that people would... Step out of the aisle, come down front, and pray to you. Allow this church to wrap its loving arms and encourage whatever step of Christian growth we need. We pray these things in Jesus' name.